Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. And hello, everyone. This is episode number four. I hope everyone is having a great week and that you had a very good Fourth of July weekend. I hope everyone was safe. I hope everyone wore a mask if you were out in public. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for the support that I received on last week's email uh, in the form of texts, emails, comments, etc. I had several musicians from across the country contact me offering their thanks for filling a void in the podcast world with this topic. And that means so much because that's why I started it. I'm an avid listener of podcasts, but there was, as far as I could tell, by searching nothing on this topic. I'm honored to say that it is now covered, and and it's good because there's so much to talk about. As far as any worries I might have had about weekly content going forward, no worries. I have so many people interested in an interview, uh, in addition to the backlog of interviews I've already recorded, that I could easily get into 2021 by just using who I have lined up if I posted once a week. And that's why I'm considering posting twice a week on certain weeks. My intent is to always have something on Friday, but don't be surprised if every now and then you see something on Tuesday as well. I'm truly playing it by ear. If you'd like to know in advance when an episode is coming, make sure you're following me on either Instagram or Twitter at Life in the Pit Pod. That's one word, Life in the Pit Pod. Also, remember the things that I need you to do. It's two S's and two R's. Subscribe, share, rate, review. Did you like something? Subscribe, share it with your friend, and tell me what you love in the form of a five-star review. Now, do you think I'm off base? Is there something you don't like? At the very least, click the five-star rating Hey, it's not me, it's Apple. And tell me what's wrong. It might be something that I can legitimately improve. It might be just a complaint. But either way, please rate five stars and review, and Apple just might show our podcast to people looking for something like this if we get enough of them. Now, look, we're a niche subject. I I expect every listener here um, is here because they know me, they know the guest, they have experience in theater, or they're an instrumental musician themselves. We're probably never going to be as popular as a mainstream podcast, but we can be here for a while, thanks to you. Okay, I have a few things to share before going on. I'm not going to pretend that the latest news is part of what you can expect on most episodes here, but a lot has happened since episode three. The first thing, of course, was Hamilton, streaming. Now, please don't discredit me for admitting this, but I don't have Disney+, Plus, so I still haven't actually seen Hamilton. I've listened to the cast recording, I've even read the Ron Chernow biography that it's based on, but I still haven't seen it. Maybe someday. But I wanted to say something to anyone who is listening to this podcast. You know the name Lin-Manuel Miranda, and you should. It's his story, his book, his music, his lyrics, his iconic performance. However, do you also know the name Alex Lacamoire? If not, you should. He's the music director of the pit band he calls the Right Hand Band, and also, his arrangements are what give Hamilton the overall sound it has. Don't ignore the arrangers of your favorite shows. I never intend to take anything away from the great songwriters and book writers of musicals, but there aren't many great musicals without a great arranger. Richard Rodgers often spoke about the importance of his arranger, Robert Russell Bennett. Okay, that was the good news. On a personal note, as many of you know, I am a huge fan of film music and one of the true legends of his field, Ennio Morricone died at the age of 91 this past weekend. 
I cherish his legacy, and he will be missed. For the larger world of Broadway, the community is mourning the loss of Nick Cordero. He was 41 years old and died of severe complications with the COVID-19 virus. Go and find his story if you haven't already read it. It's heartbreaking, and it's an important reminder why you need to take this seriously. As a friend commented, his case may be one in a million, but so are you. So is your voice and your talent. Why take that risk? Nick was an actor with credits such as Waitress and Rock of Ages. We pray and wish thoughts of peace for his wife, Amanda Klutz, and his toddler son, Elvis, along with all of his family and close friends. Finally, Broadway announced that they will be closed through the remainder of 2020. A friend of mine shared the following on Facebook, and I wanted to read it here. Copied from another artist. Artists are not okay right now. Broadway is closed until 2021. Cirque is filing for bankruptcy. Feld laid off 90% of its workforce permanently. Cruise ship performers are out of work. Theme park performers have no idea when they will be recalled. Performing arts organizations of all kinds, choirs, theaters, orchestras, dance companies, dance studios, are all trying to figure out on a daily basis how to keep going and employ anyone they can in the field. If you know anyone in the arts industry, reach out to them and tell them they matter. Give them a virtual hug and make sure they are taken care of. Donate to arts organizations and keep arts alive. Our hearts and souls need it now more than ever. I couldn't agree more. Hearing us talk about playing music for shows is no substitute for, having, for artists actually having work and having the shows going on. But I hope it whets your appetite for when the shows return and especially helps you to notice that group of artists working in the pit. Today's episode features my friend, Beth Cox. One of my goals with this podcast is to not be elitist. I have guests lined up who have been all over the world, played for Broadway tours, and so on, and I absolutely can't wait to share their stories. But not every musician does this as a full-time career. Many musicians have other day jobs, and they do their work for community theaters and local schools mostly. It's not a reflection of how well they play, but it's where their hearts are and where their priorities are. And I happen to think that theater as a hobby is every bit as meaningful as theater as a profession. And I want to hear from the community players just as much as the full-time professional. Do you agree with me? Do you disagree with me? That sounds like something to put in the review. <laughs> Too much? Okay. Beth is a great guest because she is the only person I've met to date who has done shows in the pit and acted on the stage as a lead player and ensemble member and designed lights and worked with sound and been the running crew, which means moving around set pieces and props or helping with costumes. Most people have no idea what anyone is doing on stage other than their own element, but Beth knows everything that's going on. She also has a lot to say about how where you live affects your opportunities. Beth is a National Board Certified Middle School Band and Orchestra teacher in Greensboro, North Carolina. She's a very passionate teacher, and we have a lot to discuss. So let's get to the interview. And it is my pleasure today to be speaking with my friend Beth Cox. Beth, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. I wanted to talk about how we first met. Uh, we were in a show almost five years ago. It was in 2015. But the first time I heard of you was actually a year before that. So I thought it would be fun to start the episode oh. off with this. When I was preparing for this show, I, was, uh, I did a search to find the, our email correspondence. And uh, I found this email I'd totally forgotten about. It was forwarded from uh, an artistic director that we've worked with uh, before. And your email, this was in August of 2014, and it said, Hello, I am a musician returning to the area after four years in the New Bern area. I was not sure who to contact, but I play flute, clarinet, and saxophone. While in New Bern, I played uh, in the pits for several shows. 
if you could pass my contact information to your music directors, I would appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> and, and, and so on. So, um, yeah. and at that time, uh, let's see, I was doing Carrie and mm-hmm. uh, getting ready for that. And there was no, no read players in that. And then I had white Christmas and that was track. So that, mm-hmm. so I was like, well, I don't have any read books coming up. So I just kind of save <laughs> it for future reference. And then, uh, totally didn't even make the connection when we, we met. It's like, uh, I just didn't remember the name. I think probably because yeah. y- your email goes by Elizabeth and I learned, and I was introduced to you as Beth and, and I didn't mm-hmm. put that connection together until uh, I finally saw that email. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that you were aware of me at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I at least heard your name. But yeah, it was. Yeah. a. So we met uh, and I just go ahead and say this. So, Beth, you are probably the most well-rounded person in theater that I've interviewed <laughs> on this show <laughs> uh, or probably plan to interview for at least quite a while. So. Um, you, you are a pit musician as your email of introduction said, and we're, we're definitely going to talk about that, but you've also worked in the crew of a show. You've been backstage, you've managed props, you've done a lot of other things I'm going to let you talk about, but, uh, I first met you as an actor and mm-hmm. that was in the show. My second time around with the marvelous wonderettes. So let's just kind of start because you've done so much with theater. Uh, let's just start with how did you get into theater? Um, I've always loved singing. My mom plays guitar and we sang all the time growing up. So my first actual play, I was in fourth grade and I was an angel soloist for my elementary school production of Calling All Angels. I had like a two line solo that every girl in fourth grade was jealous of and it was great. (laughs) And then my first actual theater experience was in the pit for Guys and Dolls at my high school because at my high school, everyone who was in instrumental music was required to play in the pit for the musicals. So, and uh, and what instruments did you play for that show? Um, back then, I only played clarinet. Okay. Our teacher is also was also a composer, so he would arrange it for the instruments that we had and separate all the parts out. So, right. Uh, so I know you're um, you're the first person I've interviewed uh, to this point that plays a reed instrument, and it's just one of those things where you know you you can decide to pursue a career in the symphony orchestra get really good at flute, get really good at clarinet, uh, you know, just kind of pick one and get really good at it. And you can make a career like that, but you can't really do that (laughs) in the theater. It's like, if you're going to, uh, get hired, uh, you need to have more than one wood woodwind that you play most of the time. I do Mm -hmm. have a few friends that play just flute. And if I'm playing for a theater that has the budget and we're getting, the flute book and the oboe book and the clarinet book and and so forth, you know, something like Oklahoma, uh, then I'll go, I'll go get the really good flutists and the really good oboists and all that. But I would say that's like mm, 5% of the shows that I've ever done with a live orchestra and the rest, I need someone who can play as many instruments as possible. So at what point did you say I need to learn something besides clarinet? Um, It kind of started with, I majored in music ed in college, so I took the woodwind methods class first because I thought this will be a great introduction. I already know how to play clarinet. I know that saxophone and flute are similar. This will be a great way to kind of get my feet wet in teaching, but also stick to my strengths as a woodwind player. So I started out with um, saxophone, and I really enjoyed that. I ended up buying an alto saxophone and getting fairly good at that. My sister had been a flute player, so I was able to get a hand-me-down flute from her, and that kind of started my playing all three of them, and it's just sort of gone from there. So after Guys and Dolls, uh, let's talk about your pit experience. What did you do next? Um, Okay, the next year I was in the show, which was a mistake. It was Anything Goes, which has great clarinet parts, so I missed out on being in the pit (laughs) for that one. And then trying to think once upon a mattress which also had pretty good read parts and i got the clarinet ones in that again and then the worst pit i've ever chosen to be in we reorchestrated footloose into a full orchestra group which was 
There was not a lot to do as a clarinet player in that one, but it was interesting. And then I was sort of, I didn't really do much in college. I came back and played with my high school for a few shows, including like Beauty and the Beast. And I think the other one was Oklahoma when he needed additional players on wind instruments to kind of help out. So I basically came in and stole all the good parts. So when he had like a solo, he'd be like, there's going to be a flute solo, be ready for it. And I come in and kind of steal the glorious moment from the high schoolers, which looking back, it was probably not my nicest move. Mm. Um, and then my first year of teaching, I got to play with the Raleigh Little Theater for Cabaret, which was like an awesome experience. It was that we did the version with the onstage pit. We were fully costumed. We were in the entire production. It was really, really cool. <laughs> Do you remember what year that was? Oh, gosh, 2009. Okay. No, 2010. Spring of 2010. A little bit before. I, I went to Raleigh Theater production of Rocky Horror Show, but that was 2012. But it seems like I'd remember hearing about Cabaret at the time. So mm-hmm. yeah. it had a huge, they did it with a very large cast. And I think a lot of those people were regulars to Raleigh Little Theater. Right. But my job in Raleigh wasn't great. So we ended up moving out to New Bern, where was where my basically the highlight of my career because just by walking in and saying I played flute, clarinet, and um, saxophones, I was the only one who did all three. They had just been kind of picking and choosing based off of people who played one of them at whatever they felt was most important to that show. So I was very busy when we lived in Newburn. I got to play a ton of great shows there. Right. And then, so that's an yeah. interesting topic that I haven't discussed previously. The opportunities kind of relative to the area where you live so, you know, you've you've had the Raleigh area, you've had uh, New Bern, you've had the Piedmont Triad. So, so obviously you, you're you didn't have as much competition in New Bern, but has how's that presented challenges uh, just in the different areas you've lived or just kind of describe the different areas and just kind of the pits uh, and the people who play there? Yeah, so Raleigh, I only got the opportunity to play because I actually physically went down to Raleigh Little Theater. I had minored in technical theater and sort of used that as my in to get to know people and ended up doing sound for Lend Me a Tenor with a friend of the music director for Cabaret. And so like, as we're talking and I'm saying that I love playing in pits, they're like, wait, they just lost a reed player. Let me, let me get, get your email and give it over to him. And then it all kind of went from there. So it ended up being really good connections that got me there. And then in New Bern, I'm trying to think how I ended up playing in pits. I got pulled into a musical because someone had to have back surgery. And I met a guy that was music directing a bunch and he was super excited because I played everything. So just being in that smaller market, I think helped a lot. Right. Greensboro Winston is really difficult because you have School of the Arts and UNCG churning out people who don't just play three instruments they're play, they're able to play all all of them including the double reeds mm-hmm. and they have a masters in woodwinds and they're not teaching full time which has eaten my practice schedule like no tomorrow so it's been different moving back here right uh yeah i, I understand uh, i sometimes i'll go through like my list of musicians that that i might want to hire for a show kind of by family uh, of instruments and uh you know it's, it's funny sometimes I know so many guitarists and other times it's like, I know two guitarists and and they're both busy. And what am I going to do now? Um, And it seems like there was a, there was a brief window of time where I might've known one or two reed players. And now it just seems like I know so many. And if I, if, if I ask one of them and they say, well, I can't do this, but here's two names. (laughs) Yeah. It just seems like it comes out of the woodworks, uh, which, you would think would be odd just given what I said of how many people can play all of those instruments, you know, well, but it just seems like that's a thing. If you're going to be a reed player in a theater, you kind of have to learn that, that route. Right. And I think there's something about like in this area, because there are schools that are helping people develop this weird skill set that a lot of the people who have the skill set know each other, which is where you get into that people telling you, I can't do it, but here's my friend who just moved into the area who's also pursuing this degree who's fantastic. So you get a lot more sort of people moving in that all know each other. (laughs) Right. Just reminding all the listeners that um, these first several episodes are all recorded uh, in advance of the first episode and that means that we are still in um, the COVID-19 pandemics. And we're, we're in this state was what's called stage two. 
not not really sure what that means and what that's going to do what the state of the world's going to be and <laughs> when this podcast episode finally airs but you know I was just reading today that Broadway is going to come back with full theaters hopefully in January uh with you know with audiences wearing masks and all that but that's a long time especially for the full-time working musicians in New York it makes you wonder what's going to happen with musicians like reed players you know what are they doing now that skill set is not something they can use as much as they used to i i think it's been a really interesting time because while a lot of those gigs have gone away i've had a lot of students who are now taking online lessons just because they're missing playing in their ensembles at school so i think a lot of those musicians who normally gig full time are picking up sort of this temporary studio of students that are also not normally kids who take lessons. They usually get that need fulfilled by their school groups, but they don't have that right now. And they're sort of seeking out each other and finding them. Right. So I think that's been really interesting. So uh, let's, let's, uh, let's take a break from the pit for a moment and let's just kind of journey around your other uh, experiences in the theater. So your first thing was in acting, and again, I met you in Marvelous Wonderettes, and it's funny, it was, their, it was the second time for both of us on that show, because mm-hmm. you had played Missy before, and yep. I had <laughs> also done the show in, in Winston-Salem, like, I think it was two years before that, so, you know, and it was a very different experience, it's like, your, your cast was overall younger cast, I don't think any of you were out of your 20s at that time, and, <laughs> and, uh, the show that I did the first time, I think our youngest was 31 and, and we had some that were in their forties. So it was just mm-hmm. a different take on that. But, uh, but both productions were really fun. That was a really fun show. Um, yeah, just talk about some of your experiences as an, as an actress. Yeah. So it's been interesting. I seem to strike people very differently depending on who the director shows is. My first lead was as um, Lucy and you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Mm-hmm. And then I've gone from that to playing Missy, who's like super type A and in charge of everything and basically panicking because her friends are a mess in the Marvelous Wonderettes caps and gowns. And then I went the opposite spectrum, even in that show, a different director cast me as Betty Jean, who's sort of the hot mess friend who's wants to be part of the group, but also kind of wants to mess with them all the time. So that was a lot of fun to play that sort of side character. It's interesting. It's just interesting in theater how different people see you very differently and that ends up affecting the types of roles that you get. Right. Yeah. And uh, you, so, so you've had some lead roles. You've also been in the ensemble. Uh, yeah, so, so, describe, so describe the different experiences. Well, I should say the, the difference in the experiences of being a lead versus being in the ensemble. So being a lead, I feel like you get more fulfilling parts that you're when you're practicing individually, you get to really enjoy them and savor them. But then when you're in either an ensemble show or you are in the ensemble of a large show, you get this really unique experience where your part by itself isn't great, especially because I'm generally in the alto part. So I'm filling out a lot of important pieces of a harmony. But when I'm singing it by myself, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this song is so boring. Right. And then you get with the the group and it's this amazingly fulfilling thing where you're Yes, maybe I'm singing a C 37 times in one song, not that I counted during a show I was in, but there was really a song where I sang a C below the staff like 37 times in a single song because it mostly stayed there. But suddenly when you're singing it with other people and it's filling all these different harmonic functions, it's just this really beautiful experience where you get to enjoy something, a totally different aspect of what theater is. Now, uh, I know there's some lead roles where you have a ton of lines to learn, and that can be very demanding. But if we just kind of exclude that aspect, I've heard it said that if you're in the ensemble, you work harder in a production than you do if you're a lead. Would you agree with that? I think so, because, I mean, even like the number of lines, yes, you have more lines as a lead, but that makes it so much more easy to memorize them. It's awful when your lines are like you're in a scene and your lines are like, yes, thank you. And you have to remember what you're guessing and thank youing and which one's a yes and which one's a thank you. And the number of the number of numbers that you're in as an ensemble member is huge. You have to learn so much more choreography because when you're a lead, 
most of the time you're up front and you're singing and people make you look cool. Mm -hmm. When you're in the ensemble, you have to know the choreo. And especially when it's unison choreography for everybody, mm -hmm. you have to be on top of it. Because even if someone doesn't know dancing, they're going to look and be like, ooh, look at that girl. She does not know what she is doing because they're all going left and she just went right. Right. <laughs> that, that does remind me, you know, just what you say is true about lines. So I have been a lead actor in a show once and that was not a not a musical uh but it was, it was oh, something wow. i did as part of a, a a church production and uh and yeah the lines were challenging but they were mostly monologues and they were all <laughs> kind of easy to put together but twice i have done a, a version of lady day at emerson's bar and grill which is a two-person show with billy holiday and her pianist and billy holiday has 99% of the lines and the pianist <laughs> has 1%. And I, I'm probably being generous there. It's probably like less than 1%. <laughs> um, but both times it was like learning those lines was way more hard for me than learning the music. And, and I thought, but the last thing I'm going to do is complain to anybody, <laughs> especially uh, with all yeah. of the lines that, um, uh, Billy Holiday had to learn. So. Right, <laughs> and you feel true. terrible when, like, this person who has a million lines, like, I had a tiny bit part in 9 to 5 at Theater Alliance when I did it there. Right. And I was with the guy who was playing the male lead for the show, and he knew that scene inside and out. And I would be like, oh, oh, that's my third line of the night, and I don't have it. Can someone give that to me? And you feel terrible. Right. But it it's so difficult for some reason when it's... They're not, there aren't a lot of lines and they're not all together and they're not that important to the show. <laughs> I, I think it also has something to do with just what percentage of your brain is focused on a task. I think if you're, if you're a lead actor and especially if it's a talkative play, you, a heavy percentage of your concentration is on learning those lines. Whereas if you are, if you're in the ensemble, you're, you're thinking probably a lot about, well, I need to, I need to help move this chair, uh, during mm -hmm. this scene. And then I need to go get this costume change. And then I got to remember this choreo. <laughs> and then I've got yeah. to remember to sing from this side of the stage. And, and you've mm -hmm. got all this. So, so a few lines here and there, not top priority. So <laughs> that's true. It is a very small percentage of what I'm doing in an ensemble part. <laughs> When you were a music ed major, you said that you minored in theater tech. Uh, yeah. Tell, tell our listeners, especially, you know, those who don't know much about theater, what, what is, when we talk about technical theater, what do we mean? Basically, the lighting, the sound, the sets, everything that makes the production work that isn't the acting or the music. And it's super different. Right. And, and it's kind of a running joke that, Basically, the technical theater is what makes the show really work. But there's kind of a, I don't know, uh, it's a joke that you all are not acknowledged by the actors. <laughs> oh, right. And we're wearing black and we're on the stage when the lights are off. Like, it's very, it's very different. Right. Um, yeah. So I started doing that at UNCG. I got a job. It with the, it's now the UNCG theater. It used to be ACOC Auditorium. But I went to this interview and basically they asked me why I wanted to do tech. And I was like, well, I've always done theater and I tried to get into tech at my high school, but they really mostly had males doing it and they didn't really want to teach me. What I didn't know is the lady interviewing me was the first woman to be in the Greensboro Tech Workers Union. Oh. So she heard that and I was like on the spot hired. She told me that like two weeks into the job. She's like, oh, I knew I was going to hire you because you said you wanted to learn it and they stopped you because you were female. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't going to work for me. You're going to know everything about tech. Nice. <laughs> and, yeah. So, now that's a lot of different jobs. Uh, I mean, just I have worked a little bit with lights, but not much. But I have done quite a bit with sound. But I know enough that those are two very different things. Uh, so do, do you end up when you're learning tech, do you kind of like focus on one thing for a show or are you, or um, are you multitasking? You tend to be focused on one area. Um, less so if you're like, so I've done some running crew, which is the people who are moving things on and off stage, making sure the scenery is set, all the props are set. 
I've also done things like lighting and I theater lighting was my focus on my, with my minor. It was the thing that I enjoyed the most. I would spend hours doing the, um, like sitting at the light board, trying to make like the perfect wash for concerts when I was in charge of setting the lights for them at that, at that auditorium. And I found that really, really satisfying. I still like, will like walk across a stage that's just a whitewash for a um, concert and check it by holding my hand up to see where they missed the spots of shadow and light because like I prided myself on being able to get every spot on that stage at the same exact level of lighting all the time, <laughs> which is. And I don't, I don't know if a lot of people especially, who haven't been in theater realize this, but it's fascinating to me that there are so many aspects to both sound and lights. When, when you go to a production, you see someone operating the sound and you see someone operating the light board or the spotlight. And obviously the execution of that is very critical to the show. But mm-hmm. most often it's not the same person who designed it. So it's like it's not the person who programmed the soundboard for, you know, uh, music and sound effects cues and and also mm-hmm. set up the micro microphone uh, levels. But but it's definitely not usually the same person who figured out what color lights do we use here, what uh, what type of shadow placements and all that. So it's a very it's very fascinating that you. Of course, now have you had your experience in all in both running the lights and designing them? Um. Yes, but for lighting at UNCG, the guy who was in charge of it was very much, if you were intelligent, you were not going to be running the light board because the person running the light board just had to press go. And they had to do it when the stage manager said it. And they were seated next to the stage manager because that was how those theaters were set up. So he put the kid he trusted the least on light board. And then people who he trusted ended up doing busier jobs. So I ended up doing running crew and costuming and I did sound design for one opera. So you end up doing, I had more varied experience. I ended up running the light board later on when I was um, working for the Eastern Music Festival for a few summers. I would design and then run the lighting for everything. Let's talk about your day job. I'm teaching, yeah, middle school band and orchestra at Northwest Guilford Middle now. Okay. Which is so, fantastic. So you what, 10 years you've been doing something like this, this right? This will be, I'm finishing up year 12, yeah. Okay. I guess talk a little bit about just being an educator for musicians that that age uh, talk about the challenges. I know from being a private teacher that it affects when I teach, it affects how I am as a performer because it changes my perspective on things. And and also I start thinking about what I'm teaching. And it's like, hey, what if I try this myself, <laughs> you know, or actually be disciplined to do it myself and, you know, to see how that works. But yeah, just describe life as as an educator for band and orchestra and just what that's done for you as a as a performer yourself. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic job. I feel like I've learned more technical fixes from trying to help kids who have issues that maybe as a performer on flute, I never had the problem that I consistently played flat. But I had a kid who did, and now I know about adjusting their head joint and about like the placement of their soft palate and things like that, where you're sudden, you start making these connections. And then when something happens in a performance and you play something not as you would wish to play it, your brain is like, oh, why don't you try these 17 fixes that you've done before? And you kind of end up having a really good bag of tricks for helping yourself and helping other performers to be more accurate. So that's been the upside. I think the downside is that my job basically all day long is I get other people to play music and then I analyze it and how it went wrong and how we can be better. Right. So as a performer, I think my performance has actually gotten slightly worse in that, like every little mistake, I hear it and it's hard to turn off that voice. That's like, remember at measure 17, last time you bombed really hard. So <laughs> this time you're going to switch faster and you're going to have this placement of the flute and you're going to make sure that this happens correctly. And right. sometimes that monologue is running so hard that you end up kind of spiraling yourself out of doing it correctly. But Right. Uh, have any of your students played in a show while you've been their teacher? Um, I have not had any yet. I have a feeling I have a kid who has taken voice lessons with um, Amber Engel, who's really big in theater in this area. And she's a phenomenal woodwind player. She started out on saxophone and decided she wanted to learn oboe. And she made all county on both and played oboe in London last summer. 
with like a national group that goes over there. So I feel like that that child will probably be in pits very soon. And she's someone that I feel like by the time she's doing that, if you ask me, I'll be like, mm, let me check if this person's free because she's going to be better than me at this. She's amazing. <laughs> like, It is a very interesting educational experience at that age. Um, I, I won't say what show, but we, we had one show where um, we had a high schooler come and play, and it was not for a high school show. It was for a community production. But the music was very challenging. And, um, and I can honestly say that the person did not do a good job on the first rehearsal with the band only and mm-hmm. uh the person who had suggested <laughs> uh, this person for the show I, I i told them i'm a little concerned i don't know if this if they're going to have their part ready it was probably four well no it was a little over a week it was about a week and a half later that we had our next rehearsal and this person showed up completely different Everything was, was mm-hmm. it, I won't say it was flawless, but it was very close to just being as prepared as possible. And I just realized, so that person got embarrassed <laughs> when they showed up because the every every other musician knew their part. And, mm-hmm. and that's funny. There's two ways that a student can react. They can say when they're not as prepared as they thought, I guess this isn't for me. And, you know, so uh, and kind of caught, you know, revel in the defeat of that. But then you have like the example that I'm that I'm giving. This uh, this was someone that said, "I'm not as prepared as I can be. I will be prepared next time." So, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure you see both those types as a teacher. And how do you how do you approach teaching those different ways of viewing the world? <laughs> it's difficult because within an ensemble, we have groups of. I teach basically between 30 and 40 kids that then go into larger ensembles of between 50 to 60 to 80. Um, And our largest, we had 96th graders this year, which was a lot of children. But in those groups, you do have completely that spectrum of kids who don't practice and they're fine with it unless you happen to like have a test and then they have to play in front of people. And then then some of them are embarrassed and they practice more and they come back and they're like, I'm going to retake that test, Miss Cox, and I'm going to do better. And they do. And then you have other kids who come back and they're like, well, maybe I should just quit. I really, Mm -hmm. I'm really not good at violin. So I think I'm just going to quit it. So I think it's about kind of walking the line between those two groups of kids and trying to help those kids that work hard, inspire the ones who are struggling to also put in the work. Like we're very fond at Northwest of saying If you're wondering why those kids are getting good really quick, it's because they're practicing. We don't require practice logs, but we talk a lot about if this is hard. Right. And you think that that student over there is just getting it because it's easy for them. It's because you're not seeing that they're practicing at home at least a few times a week. Right. And uh, if, if I've had any, if I can credit my success to anything, I think it has to do with just being that type of student that when you're embarrassed, you respond with that. Well, I will not let that happen again. Um, mm-hmm. So I haven't mentioned it before, but I, you know, I played French horn when I was in band. I was, uh, mm-hmm. we, I was in a, I was in the last year of a junior high system. So we started in seventh grade, you know, I was, uh-huh. I actually did sixth grade in elementary school and, and it was literally like the year later that they switched the format. So which was mm-hmm. nice. I only had two years of middle school. <laughs> I mean, that would be good. That first year is rough on kids. <laughs> uh, but the first time we had chair tryouts, there were seven French horns in my band. And um, I, by at the end of the first tryout, I was chair number seven. <laughs> and just for, for newbies, you don't want to be the, the highest number. You want to be the lowest number. <laughs> you want to be chair number <laughs> one. And I... I had never had any kind of musical failure before that. I'd been a pianist. So you don't really compete with mm-hmm. other people that much. And, and I thought that I was pretty good. I mean, I probably thought I was much better than I was, but you know, having that, that sting, I went home and practiced like crazy. And a week later, I, I, I challenged, um, you know, for another tryout, we were allowed to do that. And by the, the end of that, I was second chair. So I was in seventh grade and then there was a ninth grader on the first chair. So again, this was junior high when it was seventh, eighth and ninth grades. Mm -hmm. That, that was a lesson that I've learned. Well, if you're going to be a successful, I think anything, you know, 
we talk about music, we talk about performing, but I think anything that you succeed at, you've got to, it's how do you respond to those moments of adversity? Are you going to say, well, I guess this just isn't for me, or are you going to say, well, I'm going to make it for me? Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the big, the most helpful experience of my life was terrible at the time. I went to very small schools. I went to Catholic elementary school where band was grades three through eight, and there were still only 20 of us. So I left eighth grade feeling like I was a pretty good clarinet player. I didn't like band in middle school. I almost didn't do it in high school. But then I got to high school and it was really small. And my best friend was the only other clarinet player. And she took it far less seriously than I did. So I was like coasting along first chair. And then my senior year, right after I've decided I'm going to major in music, I've started taking lessons. We got a German exchange student named David who just blew me out of the water. (laughs) And it was so upsetting because this is my senior year. I was supposed to be playing all the solos and getting all the glory and just, you know, walking on water for the whole year and then going off to music school. And instead, I suddenly had this person who, if I even wanted to be close to competing with him, I had to work my butt off. I started practicing like two hours a day just to get anywhere near the level of skill that he had. And that, I think, more than anything else, really made me grow as a musician because I wanted to be good and suddenly had to face, well, I'm really not as good as I thought. There are people who are much better than me. Right, and at that age, it's not kind of normal to think to yourself, okay, yes, I'm taking lessons now, but maybe he's been taking lessons for many years, and and Mm -hmm. so I'm just behind in that regard. So, Right. Okay, well, I I do want to ask you a few more questions. So uh, what is the most difficult book you've ever played as a read player? For a long time, it was Spam a lot because it has the Klezmer clarinet part Mm -hmm. in it, which was terrifying, and I'm a very classical player on clarinet, so I had to really work on doing all of the um, the slides and glissandos, and like the way that you do it for Klezmer is totally different. Overall, though, the hardest show was by far Legally Blonde, so thank mm-hmm. you for that experience, and yes. sorry, because that book <laughs> kicked my butt. Mm-hmm. It, it's so many key changes, and it's so many fast changes between instruments And whereas like most of the shows I've done, yes, I was switching instruments, but there was generally like enough time to pick up the next instrument and say, okay, now I'm on the saxophone and now I'm in this key and now I'm going to play. Whereas Legally Blonde, it was like, ah, okay, and I'm playing. Like it was so fast and so back to back to back because you play almost nonstop the entire show. There are very few points where there's no one playing in that one. So that was for me the most difficult that I've ever been in. So on that note, on, on just just on the off chance that Lawrence Keefe listens to this podcast, I just want to <laughs> ask, why did you need to do 38 key changes and chip on my shoulders, part one and two? Uh, yeah. And why did it have to start out like that was going to be the most playable song? Because, like, I was practicing it in my little office, and I can still picture it. I get to the first page, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can play this. And then you turn the page, and you're like, oh, my God, it's changing again. Again? Again? (laughs) And the more pages you turn, the more key changes happen. So what's your most difficult role that you ever had as as a stage performer, as an actor? Oh, I think for me it was probably the first time I did Wonderettes playing Missy, because as I said earlier, I am an alto. 100% team alto, have played a tenor before. Like, my voice tends low and I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. The part for Missy in Caps and Counts goes up to an A above the staff in solos, and then there were C's in the harmonies that I ended up just being like, not it, someone else, please help. Right. <laughs> that The A would happen on a good day if I was relaxed. But again, with me being a person who overthinks, there were times in rehearsals where I'm like, the A is coming. I better get it out. And then you squeeze everything and ruin it for yourself. So for me, like vocally and in terms of a part, because my that was my first show ever doing anything interactive with the audience. And the second one takes place at Missy's wedding for the second act. You walk out in a wedding dress getting married. So it's a lot of audience interaction. Is there a horror story uh, from playing in the pit other than all the key changes and Legally Blonde that stands out? Okay. Um, There was a leak in the theater that I used to play with in New Bern. There was a pipe from the roof where if a certain level of rain happened, 
it would overflow into this pipe that fed into the bottom of the theater where the pit was. Oh, no. And it, I played a couple shows there and everything was fine. And then this one show, it's pouring out. You can hear it through the ceiling. And suddenly this pipe next to the pit starts gushing water into the pit. And we're, you know, we have electric guitar. We have everything amped, everything mic'd. And we're like holding up mic cables and trying to avoid it. It was a mess. We ended up stopping the show early that day and refunding the money because we there was no way we could play and we were afraid of damaging equipment or someone getting electrocuted because electricity. But right. so that's my overall one from the pit, I think. Okay. Well, on the other side, what's a fond memory that you have from playing in the pit? Oh my gosh. Um, high school overall pits were just my happy place because it was, my best friend was next to me for most of those shows. She was a year ahead. So my senior year, she wasn't there, but it was just this bonding experience of being with people for a really sustained period of time where you're working together to create something. And that's just really an awesome, beautiful thing. Right. So for me, all of those pits. I don't think I've really emphasized that, you know, with my listeners, but, you know, if you're in a band or an orchestra, you're probably talking high double digits. You're talking 60, 70, 80, maybe close to a hundred mm-hmm. depending on, but like, even in high school, what were the size of your pit ensembles? Um, we had a small group, so it was generally between 20, and I think our biggest was around 30, which is big for pits. Right. But even so, you end up being a lot more exposed because in band music mm-hmm. at the level the group I was in played at, most right. things are doubled or tripled. You have support. Yeah. There's a lot of times in orchestra pit where, like, it's just you and you are the only thing happening and they stop singing on stage. So your thing can happen. So you better nail it. Like, right. But, besides, but not only that, you know, it's, but you, of course you have to be a lot more musically responsible, but I was just thinking, um, people who play in a pit together are more likely to get to know each other. I've, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I know pl- people who play in an orchestra and it's like, well, they know their section, but like, they don't talk to the brass players. They don't talk to the percussionists. And they're on the other side of the stage, so why would they? But when you're in a pit, mm-hmm. even even up to 20 people, you you probably have a good chance, especially if you're playing show after show, mm-hmm. uh, getting to at least talk to everybody. Right, and it's really interesting because I think especially pits in non-professional theater bring it bring together people with very different careers and very different lives. So that that's one of my favorite parts of being in pits is sort of how everyone else's life works when they're not there makes it really interesting to talk to them when you, when you're all together. Right. Um, so name a bucket list musical that you'd like to both as an instrumentalist and also as an, as an actress, what would you, what's a bucket list show for each? So instrumentally for me is the color purple because the clarinet parts in that function with that beautiful storyline so well, it's got gorgeous clarinet lines in it that I just, would love to play. It's one of my favorite shows. There's not a role for me as an actress in that show. So I would love to play the pit for that show. That's an interesting (laughs) choice. And what about as an actress? As an actress, this is going to be less surprising to you. I have a feeling Belle in Beauty and the Beast because she was like my spirit animal growing up. So getting to play her would be phenomenal. And it's like a part that's written exactly in my range where it's a very alto-y alto. And when there's a high note, it's not really a high note. It's a high note for an alto. So Now, I almost thought you were going to say Susie or (laughs) Cindy Lou. Oh, no, those are fun parts, but... The content of the Wonderettes for people who don't know that show, mm-hmm. it's very much a show that's written to string together a bunch of songs. Right. The, the plot is not as engaging as other shows yes. might be. It's called a jukebox <laughs> musical. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 100% a jukebox musical. <laughs> right. Um, so I always ask this of, uh, of all my guests, but especially when I ask of you being an educator, what advice do you give to, and we won't just limit it to reads, but you know, you're, you work with all of the music students. What advice would you give to any music students who think I'd like to play in a pit orchestra? Mm -hmm. So specifically for woodwinds, for me, the biggest thing was learning how to adjust my embouchure quickly. Cause on clarinet, you have a very flat chin. Mm -hmm. And if you do that on saxophone, nothing below like G and the staff is going to sound. So getting used to adjusting your embouchure and adjusting it quickly is like the top skill for woodwind people. For everyone else, the advice I give my students all the time 
if you want to be good at it, you should probably practice right? <laughs> and get into a habit of practicing in ways that make sense, not just playing through from beginning to end, but marking and picking out parts that you need to work on. Okay. And hitting those. Yeah. Now, again, we're recording this in advance, uh, but you know, what, sh- do you, what show or performance project do you, do you have next or do you have one assuming that everything cooperates? I don't have one. It's it's the weirdest thing for me because basically since I started doing theater in this area, I've had a show that I was somehow involved in every three to four months or at least six months since I've been in the area. I did Buddy Holly story in February and then I was supposed to do Children of Eden with Spring Theater in April, which of course is gone. Right. And the auditions for things that were going to be next were supposed to be the weekend after North Carolina closed everything. So right. I have nothing at this moment. I'm just waiting to see what happens next. Right. So, yeah, I'd love to say well, there's going to be a lot of stuff, <laughs> but but who knows? I, I I think when we were told to stay at home for two weeks, the thought was, well, you know, everything will just be you know kind of stockpiled. There'll be this rampant energy to fill the halls again and be together. But <laughs> I think the truth is most likely going to be, especially in the theater world, there's going to have to be a transition. And, uh, right. yeah. And, and I already know that I, I, there are summer camps that I was going to be doing and we've already talked about, well, we're going to, we're going to do them, but with a smaller group and it won't be a show. <laughs> there's not going to be an audience. <laughs> it's going to be workshops and classes and, and, and that's fun. But, but that's very different than what we had planned. It is very different. And that study that just came out from the National Association for Teachers of Singing that basically said there's not going to be safe public singing for the next while until there's a vaccine or until they figure out a better way to make sure that we're not just spewing germs on people as we sing has really made it an interesting time to be a singer and musician. Right. There's also an ongoing study from a bunch of the national band groups looking at playing wind instruments to see what that does with spreading germs. So that's true. Well, uh, Beth, thank you for being my guest today. And uh, I hope that uh, the rest of your school year goes well and uh, you have a great summer and that hopefully we're all back together uh, in performing once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Life in the Pit Pod. For next week, I'm working on a special shorter episode for Tuesday. On Friday the 17th, we'll have episode 5. We have our first conductor and keyboardist to interview, and you don't want to miss it. As always, a special thanks to Mark Parolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. All original music is composed and performed by David Lane. For the time being, you can find out more about this podcast at davidlanemusic.com podcast or at our Podbean page, lifeinthepit.podbean.com. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and share with your friends. Thank you for listening. Thank you.